hello and welcome back to yet another episode of the VC Pruner podcast a podcast that provides a unique perspective of the startup world through the lens of venture capitalists and entrepreneurs i am your host digjay and today i have with me anshuman bapna founder at terra an online climate school on a mission to activate 100 million highly skilled climate conscious professionals by 2030 the company aims to turn climate focused intentions into real world impactful actions an iit bombay and stanford alum and ex chief product officer at make my trip anshuman is a serial entrepreneur who has founded and exited multiple startups in the past including travel tech startup mygola in this episode anshuman talks about the why and how behind starting his latest venture terra investor trends and the massive opportunity in the clean tech economy building a strong culture at a remote first startup managing pivots and how a founder should think about exits i had a lot to take away from my chat with anshuman on all things clean tech and venture building I hope you enjoyed this discussion as well. So, without much ado, let's dive in and find out what Anshuman has to share. Hey Anshuman, welcome to the VC Pruner podcast. Very excited to have you on the show with us today. Hi Digjay, I'm glad to be here too. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure and uh, you know, for our listeners who don't know you yet, uh, maybe we can start with a brief about yourself. Uh, tell us how did you enter the world of entrepreneurship and with so many pit stops uh, how did you end up starting terra sure in fact my journey as an entrepreneur started in the town that you're in right now in mumbai so i did my undergrad at iit bombay class of 2000 and uh, i started my first company while i was in college at that time that was a company called righthalf.com uh, and i co-founded with two other people one of them is actually my co-founder in my current company right now so it's kind of full circle uh, and righthalf was kind of very appropriate for the times so it is a crazy idea that you could have this website where you could upload digital creative content that you have originated and we had this algorithm to figure out how valuable that content is we would take all of that sell it to publishers give you a cut i mean we made every single mistake that you can imagine 20 year olds will actually make and uh, finally managed to get some kind of an exit out of that by selling it then um, i came to business school at stanford and the idea was to again try out all kinds of different things and uh, at the end of it i ended up starting a non-profit in india called democracy connect which was focused on getting professionals to work with politicians on constituency development and legislation and, and you can see shades of that now in terra but again it was a very human capital oriented kind of a way of thinking about how to work with the system how to empower it with like more talent and and in the meantime i was also in new york working at google and uh, clearly i had enough time on my hands to kind of do both google and this not profit in india then after uh, my daughter was born uh, we left new york uh, because we thought it was the best time to kind of come back to india and and have our children kind of grow up here and at that time also to start another company called mygora.com which is a travel planning site we ran that for about four and a half five years uh, raised some money and then eventually got bought by make my trip where i was the chief product officer the first for make my trip then for also for go ibpo which is a company that they had uh, merged with and then left about a year and a half ago to focus on climate change and uh, a lot of what i have done at iit and this nonprofit and other tech startups that i've done they've all connected uh, together into what i am doing now so i'm i'm the founder of a, a company called terra.do and this is an online school for people who want to solve climate change it's a global school uh, we're about a year old as a company right now and our thesis is that climate change is this existential threat to humanity it's uh, this massive challenge but it's also an opportunity to build a better world and to build different kinds of businesses which will uh, take care of the planet take care of the people on that planet so we believe that our mission is to 
basically get 100 million people across the world working on climate over the next 10 years because that's what it will take for us to make a dent in that problem awesome awesome and that's an inspiring note to you know start the podcast itself and i want to dive deeper into your entrepreneurial experience before starting terra but maybe we can dive a bit deeper into why you started terra in the first place and uh, tell us more about the business model and uh, how you see you know this online school transform and play a role in the clean tech economy going forward sure Yes, I think uh, I mean it started out with a frankly a midlife crisis where uh, the question in my mind was, well, what's worth working on? And I had this very short list of uh, of problem statements that I was looking at, and climate change was right on top of that, and started to investigate to figure out what was going on. And my way of learning is to read as much as I can and to talk to as many people as I can. I ended up speaking to everything from people in deep tech, nuclear fusion, to environmental justice, and everything in between. to answer fundamentally this question that what can i do with my skills and two things struck me while i was doing that one was that there were many more people like me who were asking the same question and it wasn't easy because climate is this massive space it covers so many different topics that unless you're very structured in your learning it's very hard to grok the space that was one challenge but i think a more important and subtle challenge was that it felt lonely it felt like i mean i've i've had like a long career uh, doing all kinds of tech startups and so on and yet here it felt like i was kind of on my own with not really a community or a set of people to fall back on to learn from and to collaborate with so that was one insight that uh, there was there were many more people like me with similar kind of questions i think the other big insight from a macro standpoint was simply this that honestly where climate change and its perception is right now feels very similar to how the internet felt back in 1998 and 99 it felt like internet was kind of this cute little thing that would exist on the side and maybe kind of build these interesting uh, maybe even giant businesses but it it felt like this separate industry and lo and behold 20 years later internet is kind of the underlying stack for everything we do sometimes unfortunately uh, including politics right so and i feel climate change is such an existential threat to way of living on this planet that it will touch every single industry first of all it touch every country so developed and developing countries it will touch every single strata in those societies and it also touches every single industry so we're talking about everything from the usual suspects around energy and agriculture but also transportation construction finance media and so on so to me it felt like the business opportunity was basically that each of these industries would need to kind of have their climate moment and figure out a way to transition into that yeah and uh, that would require a completely different set of skill sets those skill sets would need to be trained by someone and right now nothing like that existed anywhere on the planet so we said let's go out and build something like that and i think the opportunity is to uh, build almost this horizontal layer of talent across the entire uh, globe of people who are coming from all different walks of life from finance from oil and gas from media and from software and so on and have them all have kind of this uh, ability to both have the context around climate and then the skills to go solve specific problems in climate so that's what we're trying to build our business model right now is pretty straightforward it's like a typical online education company so think of us like a coursera or agidacity for climate uh, for now but honestly what we're building is kind of this almost like this talent layer across every single industry and that i think is a lot more valuable than simply being about selling courses to people but that's something that we'll unfold hopefully over the next couple of years awesome and i love the vision and you know you're right not many people are focusing on inevitable change that we are all going to see everyone is talking about climate change but we are not seeing much innovation as of now you're also talking to investors right investors are coming to terra to validate or form their own thesis on this industry 
what are some sectors that you see coming up when it comes to addressing climate change uh, except for you know the electric vehicle boom which we are you know already seeing now yes yeah, so i think uh, investor interest is very market dependent yeah so the two markets that we look at pretty closely us and india i can give you a sense of what's happening in those two places so first of all india so india is actually still i don't think there is as much momentum around climate innovation yet in india in fact the lens that we use in india which i think is a very valid lens also is more around environment and sustainability so for example air pollution really is kind of a topic that we talk about and rightly so which is one of the impacts of climate change and therefore the kind of startups that you see or the kind of innovation that you're seeing in india or the kind of investor interest that you're seeing is around for example waste reduction in industrial processes we're also seeing increasingly outside of just electric vehicles also an interest in electrification of a bunch of different sectors across the economy so one of the things that india has been like a shining star for is the massive amount of renewable energy that it has brought online in the past decade and india has still a long way to go uh, to fulfill the needs of how, how much energy we need and so therefore there's a lot of innovation and deployment of capital that's happening there but i think that's that's where we see uh, we see water we see space tech a little bit which is focused on environmental degradation and we're definitely seeing waste as a big part of uh, the india story and i hope that we will see a lot more especially on the ev side i think it's going to be really really big the two wheeler market and the three wheeler market in india india is anyhow kind of a big pioneer in that and on top of that i think uh, we'll probably get the ev story before uh, any other country does on, on those segments uh us is actually getting very interesting because us had like this massive clean tech 1.0 boom and bust so some of the top venture uh, companies in the world lost their shirts literally in around 2007 to 10 kind of a time frame betting on all kinds of clean tech fuels solar etc cetera, etc cetera. so there used to be for the longest time almost like a stigma against investing in clean tech i think what has really changed is a few different things one i think is that uh, the new political administration in america is very gung-ho about climate i think uh, biden talks about climate as the number one number two priority all the time and i think what's most remarkable and something for india to also potentially look at is that they have successfully politically managed to connect climate to jobs so climate is no longer about oh let's save the polar bears right because in capitalistic societies even that and surprisingly does not seem to resonate sometimes but the fact that uh, climate equal to massive job creation is something that america has been able to kind of push that uh, and therefore you see a ton of interest in almost every sector you can imagine in fact we started a program for venture investors who are looking to understand climate only because it seemed like everyone is kind of knocking uh, on our doors and saying well do you have something to teach me so, and we have this program where everyone from uh, anderson horowitz to a lightspeed to venrock and a bunch of different top venture names and private equity players and family offices are part of that program and that's because there's this incredible interest both from a risk and an opportunity standpoint so that's what i think uh, is happening in the us which is very gratifying to see because less than like 12 to 18 months ago as you can imagine the environment in the us was completely different absolutely and we've seen that paradigm shift especially after the pandemic and uh, with the changing administration as you mentioned a lot of investors are taking interest in knowing more about the sector and developing your, their own thesis uh, so they definitely see a massive opportunity but what do you think have been the barriers so far for us to not see you know enough entrepreneurs jump into this space because the opportunity is clearly there yeah and i think uh, by the way again the answer between us and india is starkly different yeah 
US, I can't hold off the number of people who are who are like experienced entrepreneurs who are looking into something related to climate right now. And that's not just because they're feeling worried about how the environment is changing. They actually think there's a trillion dollar opportunity out there in multiple different sectors. So that transformation in the US is completely 100% on right now. I mean, look at the kind of sectors we're talking about, right? Energy, agriculture, manufacturing, transportation, construction. These are like literally half of the world's GDP. I think in climate, you have had both innovation and deployment bottlenecks. So if you look at, for example, the thing that I love to kind of show typically if I had like a presentation to show is price curves of solar panels. Like price curves of solar panels have actually fallen then, uh, faster than the uh, price curve of uh, semiconductors, right? which is the one that we in the internet world are very familiar with. And therefore, we are at a point where now people are seriously talking about solar energy being so cheap that it'll be a waste of time to even meter it. That's the kind of energy revolution we're talking about. So I think it's a brave new world entirely in climate. And I mean, that's that's the message I keep giving to entrepreneurs, which is that, look, if you were in 1999, not thinking about the internet as a place where you will start your next company, to me, it feels quite a bit like climate is that exact same thing right now. No, for sure. And I absolutely agree. In terms of vision and outlook, you mentioned that you're thinking about this as a horizontal stack and you'll have, you're forming a community around climate change and people who are, you know, more conscious about being more sustainable and more, you know, focused on clean tech. Uh, How do you see that evolve in the next decade, you know, for Terra? Uh, What are some specific parts within that, you know, clean tech economy where you think Terra could participate? Yeah. So maybe I just kind of uh, dial back a little bit about my own motivation for doing this, right? So, uh, I mean... Every single climate solution that you see out there is a lifetime's work. And there are thousands upon thousands of them. I mean, if I was to just try to figure out how to get cows to not belch methane and therefore build a new kind of feed additive for them, it'll take me 20 years to get to that, to market and to scale, right? And that multiplied by a thousand solutions out there. So to me, it was very clear that at the stage where I was at, that I wanted to play horizontal. And to me, there are only three horizontal things that you can play at. One is capital, which is that if I had a way, if I had a way to figure out how to get a trillion dollars in capital in climate, then efficient markets will somehow allocate that capital well enough to all kinds of climate solutions and I can rest in peace. But I don't know how to get a trillion dollars in capital. That's not my skill. The other approach was to say, look, uh, distribution. Like, what if we solve for distribution? If I was in a position where the right kind of solutions, I can figure out a way to get in the hands of a billion people. So if I was working with Niti Aayog or some such kind of a government level policy making, then maybe that was the thing that I would have done. But the third thing was talent, which is that if we are talking about the scale that we're talking about, we need this incredible pool of talent. Now, the way I see Terra's mission is to basically create this massive pool of 100 million people. We're all looking to work on climate. What we sit on top of that could be all kinds of talent-powered businesses that you can think of, right? So what is this, what are examples of talent-powered businesses? You have McKinsey as an example of a talent-powered business. You have Y Combinator as an example of a talent-powered business. And you have, I don't know if you've heard of TopTal, but TopTal as an example of a talent-powered business, right? Now, each of these are potentialities sitting inside Terra. And I want to figure out a way to not have to say, oh, we're going to be the Y Combinator for climate necessarily. The idea is to actually still play horizontal and to allow almost like an app store ecosystem to develop, which is if you have the 2 million people or the 10 million people who really care about climate and highly skilled on Terra, can we allow others to build all kinds of things on top of that? Imagine if like, if you're sitting in South Africa and you want to start like a crowdfunding site for climate uh, solutions, why would you go out and build your own audience? Why would you not build on top of the Terra audience that is already out there? 
if that is the only way we can have this multiplier effect otherwise time is too short we have 10 to 15 years to get this right uh, and i don't think a single company will be able to do that yeah and with time if you are able to you know manage and track the right path you'll probably be able to tap into all three points that you mentioned which is capital through the ecosystem distribution as you grow and then of course talent which you're already building in now so you know kudos to you for this initiative and you know we want to track this closely and hopefully join you in this uh, journey to make this you know more possible across economies anshuman i want to you know switch gears here and talk more about your founder experience across you know three different startups uh, i want to start off talking about terra you know uh, one important thing that founders are focusing on uh, is the culture you know that you're building when you're starting a company uh, and for you it was quite different because you started terra in the middle of a pandemic in a remote first team so could you talk more about you know what are you actively focusing on to build a strong culture at a remote first startup like terra yeah no and this is a great question and a very tough one so first of all just to set the record straight so we started a company before the pandemic hit and i was very clear that terra will always be a remote only company and the reason is very simple which is that in a way terra's hypothesis right what we're trying to do with terra is that you can take all these talented hard working people all across the planet and get them to work on this uh, rem- remotely online collaboratively on this very hard problem called climate change right so if that is the thesis then we should ourselves exemplify that right so that's why the company was always intended to be completely remote from day one in fact uh, my one of my co-founders i have never even met her in real life so far wow never in my life in fact the way i met her was that i was at cafe terra the famous cafe terra in bank in koramangala bangalore talking about climate change to someone and someone overheard me and said you should talk to my sister in law who th- fortunately has a <laughs> has a climate background like deep climate background so we've been co-founders i haven't met her yet now to your point about the culture of a remote company in fact we are actually doubly hard and i want to kind of point that out which is that not only are we remote we are remote and dispersed in time so we have 12 full time people and roughly 20 people who kind of help us either as paid consultants or as volunteers and we are probably in i don't know 12 different countries six to seven different time zones and uh, none of us have actually physically met each other so far and i actually used to take pride a lot of pride in the kind of culture that i had built in my previous companies and tra- frankly i'll be completely candid with you i've struggled here in uh, in terra and i think one big part is that we're obviously on a mission so therefore that helps but outside of that things that we have discovered work or don't work have all been through first principles and by figuring them out ourselves so just to give you a sense of like what uh, we found so far one for example was that it became very clear that everyone in the company had to develop a writing muscle right you have to write down to communicate that is the only way stuff happens i used to be a big fan of the amazon style of like uh, having like a six pager that you read before the meeting quietly or during the meeting quietly and then kind of have a substantive discussion around that that has become the only way we can have discussions now right you don't have a document you don't have a meeting that's the end of the story because that's the only way we are able to coordinate that across time zones i think the uh, the aspect of also autonomy which is how how independently should people be able to run is something that we have kind of taken to heart we have like a tiny pod that uh, is like self sufficient enough to kind of go out and take decisions and then the way we start out anything new on top of terra is to essentially find what i call a principal agent right so somebody who says i'm really keen and passionate about this let me actually go and figure out how to work on this and we say okay go go for it in fact one of the most interesting examples of remote and time dispersed which i really want to share with others like a hack which is uh, we realized very early on that look our entire company quote and quote is slack it's all that we do is to live on slack all the time now if that's the case 
why would you and i've always felt that uh, hiring people is a bit of a crap shoot right it's very hard to figure out even like after you spent like hours upon hours with them to figure out where they'll work out in the company and vice versa so we said well what if we cut that all together and what we do is that uh, we let individuals who know of us and we don't know of them yet raise their hands come up to us and say look i really know xyz but uh, can i help you with something uh, can i work with you on something so we say you know what I'll just have one conversation with you, and then I'll invite you to a Slack channel. There'll be you hang around in that Slack channel. You'll see all these things flying around. First, you'll get a sense of the metabolic metabolism of the company, and second, anytime you see something that you find interesting, just raise your hand and make it independent enough for that for two weeks that you're out there building and figuring it out on your own. At the end of two weeks, you and I have a discussion. If it feels like you're on the right path, then great. We'll convert that into a paid consulting engagement, and let's do it for three months. And if at the end of 3 months it seems like you're enjoying it and we're enjoying it well let's convert it to a full time job so of the 12 of us who were full time four actually came through this path they became employees after weeks and months of actually working with us already so the day they joined it felt like oh we've known this guy forever like there's literally like except like a ra- raising a toast to them there wasn't really anything else to figure out or onboard them about and i think that's that's a sign of how future of work would look like And, and and the other thing about being an educational startup is that we are graduating hundreds of amazing people all the time right and they're very mission oriented so therefore they reach out to us and say well can i help you with something and it turns out that a lot of our new programs are actually run by our fellows people who have graduated from our program actually end up starting more programs for us and that kind of comes back in all kinds of interesting ways so to me that sounds like the future of remote work that you can find people all across and you can get them to do in this very gradual kind of a way and get them inside the company having said that i think uh, building a good culture with a remote and time dispersed company has been one of the hardest things that i have done in my life right i mean some very interesting points that you mentioned and you know it's almost like building a moat using that you know community flywheel and it's it's just the nature of you know the business that you're in and the point on hiring i think that's a very interesting like trying to work together in phases before transitioning them to a full time employee i think that's a very good hack um the other thing i want to talk about again from your experiences uh, you know pivots and you've done uh, quite a few pivots and it's always difficult to you know to decide for a founder when is the right time to do that especially with the inertia that you are in you're always driven and uh, you know optimistic about what you're building and uh, the plan that you want to execute upon so from your experience you know what kind of frameworks did you have or uh, what kind of ad hoc approach did you have when you were thinking about pivots at your own company having done a lot of pivots is also kind of a code word for saying having failed many times to to get it right <laughs> and i'm actually proud of that so uh, i think the very first one is uh, transparency which is uh, you have to have kind of almost like a prenuptial agreement with your co-founder on why you're doing what you're doing what's your end objective with this company that you're doing right so therefore when it's time to pivot as long as your prenup still holds for example in my previous startup our prenup was that look we're trying to build a very binary outcome company it's either zero or one we don't want something in between we'd rather shut it down and move on if it's something in between and so therefore for us the emotional part of it was significantly easier as co-founders because we said yeah it's not a, it's not zero or one right now it's somewhere in between we don't want that as we talked about it right then it was left only to an intellectual part which is that okay now that we're moving away from what we're doing what's the right thing to do which is a significantly easier conversation and that transparency is not just between you and your co-founder but also between you and your investors and you and your employees especially the last one i think second is that uh, i've also done a lot of consumer internet and therefore consumer internet one powerful part of that is that the feedback loops are like super tight super sharp right so you can't like just uh, kid yourselves that uh, 
oh, maybe this is product market fit, maybe this is not. It's like, it's, it's visible in your data in some way or the other. So one of the things that I have kind of ultimately landed on is to say, go wherever there is a natural pull from the market. Right. And natural pull from the market is a bit like defining love, right? Like what does what does love yeah. look like? But the natural pull from the market is that like you're doing five things wrong and yet people are breaking down your door for this one thing, one slice of what you do. So abandon your preconceived notions about what you set out to do. And by the way, Terra is a great example of that because in Terra, when I started out, thinking was that, look, we're trying to find great talent to meet great climate opportunities, right? What is the shortest path to get there? The short. This path is some kind of a marketplace, right? A jobs marketplace or a skills marketplace or whatever have you. So why not just do that? Like, why are we doing this whole learning, learning business? But what really happened was that that wasn't really moving us fast for a variety of different reasons. And yet there were all these incredible people who were crawling out of the woodwork and saying, teach me about climate. I really want to know. I really want to know. And I've never done online education. I fundamentally thought education is a bit of a hard, hard business because, I mean, for a variety of different reasons. And yet it felt very clearly that there was this, at least this segment out there, which is saying, look, I need to be taught first. So we pivoted into that even before we actually got the company started early on. So that's kind of the, uh, the second principle. And I think the third one is that uh, you have ultimately, no matter how much capital you've raised, the combination of the capital that you've raised and the fatigue that might set in inside yourselves and others, you have two, maximum three shots at it, right? So make those shots count. Pivot is, quote-unquote, simply reusing what you've already done in some kind of a new way. And that's fine as long as you're intellectually honest about it. Because often when you talk about product market fit, for example, sometimes it feels like over the we can subconsciously assume product is the problem. Sometimes the market is the problem. Right. right? So maybe you just take this identical product, but move it to a different market. And by the way, that's hard often for entrepreneurs because if you're the building kind, building product actually gives you a sense of progress, even if it's a false sense of progress. Therefore, when you're pivoting, the natural inclination is to kind of build something new on top of what you already have. But it might entirely be the case that you need to take exactly what you have, just go to a completely different market altogether and try it out there. So those kind of, I think, um, like those two or three principles are the ones that I kind of uh, think about when I think about this. No, I think that's very valuable. And uh, what I can you know take away from here is, is uh, keeping your North Star, the vision, very clear, very transparent. Uh, at the same time, you know, listening to signals not trying to push yourself to the you know roadmap that you've already laid out, but being open to use a different direction to reach the same vision and goal that you have in mind for the company. So, uh, you know, switching gears here, uh, the other interesting topic I wanted to discuss uh, is fundraising. Uh, and you've done that, you know, successfully across all your ventures. And it's, it's a very different experience to do it as a first time founder uh, versus a second or a third time founder. I want to start off by talking about from a first time founder perspective, what should you know they keep in mind uh, when they're raising for the first time, especially when they don't have you know the right network or the right track record to show to potential investors when they are building for the first time? Yeah, and I'll, there I'll put on my angel investor hat as opposed to my entrepreneur hat. And uh, to me, I think the single most interesting thing is uh, investors don't uh, early stage investors uh, or investors in general invest in lines, not a dot. Right. So uh, I think the classic uh, essentially cases that what I want to see is the rate of growth from the last time I met you. And that means two things. One is that you're going to meet me multiple times. And the first time when you meet me is actually has nothing to do with raising money from me. It's about putting your hand up and saying, hey, uh, I just want to brainstorm a few things with you. And maybe not every investor would be open to that. But trust me, a lot of investors are. In fact, on the early stage, when you're looking at angel investors who are going to be potentially strategic to you, that is the definition of a strategic angel investor who's saying, look, I am willing to waste my time with you 
because I just love, I'm, I'm in it not because I think there are going to be massive financial returns. Sure, that would be great too. But because I love the hustle bustle of trying to figure out uh, from the ether, what is the idea and what does the founder lack, et cetera, et cetera, and build that all together. So therefore, one is that I want, like, I want to see the delta that has happened in your thinking and in your execution since the last time I met you. If you solve for that, then to me, it feels like you can write, uh, I'm, I'm comfortable writing a small check right away. And more importantly, making introductions in my network. Because I know that when I make introductions to 20 of my people in my network with this entrepreneur, I wouldn't be embarrassed. I'm not using up my social capital. I'll probably be get, gaining more social capital because everyone's going to be impressed by their rate of growth. So that's kind of one way to uh, think about it. And I think uh, entrepreneurs in general tend to kind of uh, make the mistake of waiting for the time, quote unquote, when they're ready to do, have their first conversation. I would say go much, much earlier than that. Got it. Got it. Makes sense. Uh, and talking about an experienced entrepreneur mindset now, and people talk about that, it gets easier, you know, as a second or a third time entrepreneur to raise funds. But I'm sure there are some nuances and considerations that also come along with that, uh, you know, when you're raising as an experienced entrepreneur. So could you talk about some of those challenges and considerations that you had to bring in for Terra? Yeah, so I purposely chose to move away from what everyone expected me to do as the next startup, right? So my whole thing was consumer internet, right? Consumer internet, and I've done travel for 10 years. So if I went out and started a company, which is about corporate travel, for example, right? Or some variant of travel or some variant even in consumer internet, my ability to raise capital would be significantly higher. Yeah, Terra is a company that is a very unusual thing. So we have about 30 individual investors on our cap table for the 1.5 million round that we raised. Right. And we were actually looking for an even smaller check, 800K to begin with. But those every single one of those 30 investors, I've made both a sell and an anti-sell. The sell is all about mission. The anti-sell is saying, look, I have no idea whether this is even a venture-backable business. I myself don't know. Right. So I'm going to experiment with your money. I'm going to take your money. I'm going to try this, that, this, that, this, that. So therefore, you have to trust in my ability to execute fast enough to find something that fits. And second, that uh, all of this experimentation is in the service of not building the next photo app or the next food delivery app, but solving an important problem. Right? So therefore, worst case, you can write it off as, okay, my karma points have been added by investing in Terra. But that is what I needed, which is I need completely experimentation capital. And therefore, my ability to go out and raise, like sometimes you see experienced entrepreneurs raise like seed rounds of like 10 million, 30 million, right? I was not in that game. I was not planning to be in that game. I was not in that game at all. So therefore, maybe this is a question for one of your other experienced entrepreneurs who've gone out and raised those kind of rounds. No, but for sure, I mean, I think what your early investors are banking on is the experience, you know, just the founder experience. Of course, it, it could be in a different sector altogether, uh, but the experience that comes with, you know, building and exiting multiple companies. From, from your perspective, there's this lever of control, uh, you know, which you don't want to give away, especially when you're experimenting and, uh, you know, like you said, you want to figure out, and evolve the business model as it goes. So maybe that's the consideration here. You don't want to, you know, bring in institutional capital too early. So I think that's probably one of the nuances that I can take away, you know, from how you raise your initial check. Yeah. And if you had to, you know, plan the next round, what would be your strategy? Would you continue raising it in small checks, uh, keeping control, or would you go in with a strategic institutional investor? No, I think just specifically for Terra, I think it's fairly straightforward because I think the big question that we need to answer internally for ourselves is that, is this the venture-backable business in the first place? And uh, is that variant of Terra, which is venture-backable, is that something which is a local maxima at best for impact? So what I mean by that is that, hey, maybe there's a nice, healthy, fast-growing US, Europe-centric online education in climate kind of a business out there. 
that Terra could definitely be in, and that's great. But then I have to also believe that the reason why we started this company, which is to actually solve for climate, is best served by educating and making lots of money from people, or from educating people. If it turns out that that is at best a local maxima, I am not doing Terra for that right now. I'm doing Terra for a global maxima. And therefore, it's very important for us to be, for me to be able to use that capital to identify where the highest hill is, which means that, I mean, fortunately, online education is a nice profit margin kind of a business. You can run it like a dhanda. Therefore, you don't have to go out and rush to raise capital. Also, you're not in, a, in, a, in an environment or in, a, in an industry yet where capital is a defense. Right? Therefore, whether, whether you want it to or not, you'll have to go out and raise 30 million because your competitor is, will otherwise. We're not there yet. So therefore, we want to take our time kind of figuring out uh, uh, what's the right strategy for us. Makes sense. Makes sense. And uh, again, sense a lot of maturity, uh, you know, in the in the way a second or a third time founder would think, you know, about raising capital. And I think there's there is, there's a lot of cues and insights uh, from this answer, you know, for a lot of entrepreneurs that are seeking to raise capital. Uh, first of all, trying to identify, like you said, you know, what's the maxima or what's the vision for the company and whether it's it's truly a venture backable business. So Anshuman, before we jump into the rapid fire, one last question, uh, you know, and again, this is a topic which comes often in a founder's journey who has raised capital, which is, uh, you know, the decision to make an exit and what's the right time to, you know, start thinking about exit in the first place. So how do you think founders can create that optionality for themselves, uh, especially, you know, when they've decided that that's the best part to take forward for the company and for all the stakeholders involved? Yeah. No, I'm glad you, you asked this question and I have kind of a very specific kind of a view on that, which is, first of all, uh, my exits have all been like the, the sub 20 million kind of uh, exits, which are never written about, right? They never talked about, nobody discusses these at forums and panels and on all the panels are all these big guys who sold for hundreds of millions of dollars and so on, right? Now, it turns out the vast majority of exits are actually of that nature. So, uh, uh, and I'm pressured this was uh, with, in my goal in a big, big way where uh, when I kind of started to figure out, well, okay, so what's the cutting edge knowledge about selling companies in that kind of a band? I heard essentially nonsense, right? All I heard was people saying, oh, companies are not sold, they are bought. I was like, okay, sure, tell me more. And like, no, that's all I know. It's like, what the hell, this doesn't make any sense. So I essentially, in, in a way, kind of created my own process for that sub 20 million kind of, a, kind of an exit uh, thing where I realized that the very first thing that is super critical is that, first of all, you have to um, create options for yourselves. Now, if you don't have options, it doesn't matter. Like You can argue to the blue in the face about who's strategic and who's not. If they're literally like two guys, of which one guy is only semi-interested, then you don't really have options to choose from. So go out and create options like an investment banker would. Now, what would an investment banker do, right? They would create like a, a sheet, Excel sheet, with the three obvious names that come to mind and then 30 more comparables, right? So for example, in my list, when we're trying to sell MyGola, which is a travel planning startup, Disney was also on that list. I don't know why Disney was on the list, but I somehow at some moment in my kind of in frenzied fury thought that, hey, maybe who knows, right? So they, I had a list of 40 companies. So therefore you have to kind of think like that, that this is truly like a financing option that you have. And by the way, from an exit standpoint, I think every financing option is actually, you should put your emotions aside for a second and think from a company's kind of a larger vision and your own personal wealth standpoint, well, uh, should I actually take more venture capital to grow the business even more, but obviously with higher risk, 
or potentially take this offer from this other company, which is willing to make an offer, right? So it's a pure financial decision that you should be clear about before you get into the emotional part of it. And the emotional part might still say, you know what? I don't care about the offer. I, st- I need to build this massive company or die trying. And that's perfectly fine. Now, the other thing which I keep seeing in, uh, I think there's a, there's a massive incentives problem, which is that venture capitalists never tell you about exits, uh, not the sub 20 billion exits, right? They're happy with a billion dollar exit for sure. And that's because for them, it doesn't move the needle at all. Exactly. But for entrepreneurs, especially first-time entrepreneurs, that is life-changing. It completely changes the kind of things that you're able to do after that. And Terra is a great example of the fact that I can do Terra right now is because I managed to figure out a way to, to do that with my previous startup. So you're kind of on your own. And I often hear from entrepreneurs where they would reach out and say, or they would, they would share, they say, well, that company reached out to me with an offer. I like, great. And then what did you do? Then the answer would be, oh, we thought about it, but then X, Y, Z, and we said no right now. That's fine. You said no, no problem. Did you create a list of 15 other companies yesterday and reached out to them also in the process? And why would I do that? Because this is a financing decision. You're actually, your fiduciary responsibility is to actually go scan the market for what's available. So therefore, I think to me, it feels a lot like the exit process for startups is kind of in the same fuzzy grandma's old tales world that's raising money used to be like 20 years ago they would say oh go to, you get one shot with the vc make sure you're well prepared and now we we're way past that point now that hasn't happened in the exit world so i think there's a lot of uh, unpacking to be done there for sure and i absolutely agree you know and you've articulated it really well there's a lot of nuance when you're thinking about exits and the point on, you know, uh, making a more financial decision and not an emotional one definitely hits home. You know, with that, I want to, you know, switch to our final segment, which is the rapid fire and uh, I'll shoot some questions and hope to get your honest immediate thoughts on the same. (laughs) I'm scared of this one. Okay. First question. uh, One thing that you'd like to change to improve the state of the Indian startup ecosystem. Uh, I yeah, maybe I, I, should, I should keep it unfiltered. I will kill all angel syndicates. I've seen enough egregious term sheets given to first-time founders by the old angel networks to kind of have completely lost my faith in uh, their incentives and motivation for being in the ecosystem in the first place. Right? There are very, very few angel networks who are actually doing it for the right reason in the right way. Got it. So what should founders you know, be more uh, vigilant about when they're raising an angel round from a traditional angel network? I think uh, by this time, fortunately, term sheets are no longer voodoo. Everyone kind of knows what the standard terms look like. And therefore, reach out to kind of your founder network of uh, other entrepreneurs and show them your term sheet and say, does this make any sense? And if you find more than like one or two red flags in a term sheet, just that's not your investor. Got it. Makes sense. Um, If you had to give a TED talk, what topic would you choose and why? (laughs) I think uh, to me, I mean, it'll definitely be about climate change. But the specific angle that I would have is to talk about how I think this is the one chance that we're getting. So rather, you know how every crisis is an opportunity. So if you take a humanistic threat to where we are as a civilization right, and, uh, and what we're doing to ourselves and to our, our fellow men and women and to the planet, to me, it feels like that we've gone wrong in like, like 19 different ways. And uh, this crisis is such an existential massive scale crisis that it presents the opportunity to fundamentally transform some of our core held beliefs about how governments should be run, how economies should be run, what should we be even optimizing for in life and across these uh, different institutions. And I think you're already beginning to see a little bit of that that happened through COVID. I mean, in a way, you could argue COVID has made 
universal basic income a lot more palatable in some of the most capitalistic countries right um and somebody maybe again in scandinavia will take that experiment and convert that into like a full fledged national policy but i think you will see something you have the chance to do that right with climate which is the historical inequities that we have done uh, between developing and developed countries and within developing countries themselves marginalized and, and not marginalized people etc we have a chance to fix that because we can construct a new order um through this crisis so that's kind of my what my ted talk is going to be about i'm sure that's going to be a powerful one and i definitely look forward to you know listening to that ted talk whenever you get an opportunity to uh, present that last question vcs and founders from the startup ecosystem both us and india that you admire and look up to i love the lightspeed team in india and uh, bejul especially i think i just uh, I, i feel like i've seen him across the decades go through some really tough times and i can imagine like for anyone else it would have been kind of very challenging to kind of hold on to your beliefs and conviction about what the market is going to look like and here we are lightspeed is kind of a lightspeed india especially like a storied firm and rightly so with some incredible people so i just love those guys kind of uh, passionately so just want to do a shout out to them i think um, on the founder side i mean there's so many but uh, the few that i would really want to call out i think one i would just want like call out nandan nilakani i mean essentially he's lived like i don't know what three lives in one life right and kind of shows you uh, in a way why we are doing all this like okay like to me the pursuit of wealth is awesome i mean there's i find nothing wrong with that at all i think it's incredible but you, it doesn't answer the fundamental zero level questions like and then what and to me nandan of all entrepreneurs out there that i've seen has answered that beautifully right so i have huge admiration for him and uh, i think the us ecosystem uh, i just uh, i think i'm seeing a new breed of uh, investors here which i think is just remarkable so for example there's this uh, one fund called uh, elemental accelerator and these guys are based out of hawaii and uh, they have figured out that one of the classic valleys of death for uh, Uh, clean startups is deployment of their prototype into the real world right because unlike software this is hard right you have often i mean you have to convince a uh, large institution sometimes you have to even change local regulation these guys really get that problem and therefore they understand the politics and the policy behind this happening and therefore they work with the local government to change that and to me that sounds like such a powerful insight which is so unsexy but so relevant to uh, breaking the the, the gridlock and that to me is a very unique way of looking at the world that this uh, investor has got it any final thoughts for you know founders uh, both current and aspiring founders that are listening to you right now uh, i think maybe the most important thing that i would say is that don't mess up your personal life right and uh, and i think this is also very uh, things that i i honestly don't get asked much about i think you should ask this question a lot more which is and that's this is the first question i try to ask entrepreneurs which is how are you feeling and personally how's how's your spouse or your partner or your family feeling about what you're doing right now and you'll realize that we kind of this whole narrative around this heroism which is behind being an entrepreneur it has a very dark side to it and we fortunately now seeing even in the indian media people talking about it a little bit more openly i mean same thing i mean even for me i mean we, um, i have like a bollywood style romance like you know each other for like since we were like in class 9th and so on and yet every single fiber of our marriage was tested during my startup time and nobody asked me about how that was going and yet that was one of the fundamental aspects of whether my company succeeded or failed so please uh, keep your loved ones close and uh, listen to them and and hear hear them out no point taken and uh, you know very beautifully put uh, anshuman this has been a terrific conversation uh, i'm sure a lot of founders as well listening to this will gain a lot from this uh, thanks for your time and yeah hopefully you know we can do this sometime soon again 
And Bigja, thanks for the great questions and uh, looking forward to uh, seeing a lot more of these uh, podcasts coming out. Absolutely. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of the VC Bruno podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please let our guests know about it. Share your thoughts on social media and let them know what were your key takeaways. We would truly appreciate if you could subscribe to our podcast on the podcast platform of your choice and leave us a review on Apple iTunes. This will help others discover the podcast. To get insights and to learn more about startups and venture capital, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram. We will love to hear from you there. You can find all episodes together on our website thevcpreneur.com. We will be back again next week with another VC preneur that is making a dent in the venture universe. Until then, take care and keep shining.